Welcome to Unbossed. I am Ravana filling in for Senator Nina Turner. And if she were here, she would want to tell you all that you need to subscribe, share the stream, and of course, send some love in the comments so that we can look them over later. And joining me today is Dan Evans, who is a political commentator and host of The Power Report. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolute pleasure to be on with you. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. What I'm not super excited about is this first story. So let's dig into this bad news, this tragic news from earlier today. An eight year old child is dead after being detained by Border Patrol in Texas. Now this unfortunate death adds to the death toll among desperate people who are seeking refuge in the United States. Let's get into some of the details about this horrific situation. According to US Customs and Border Protection, the child died following a quote, medical emergency while held with her family. The CPB issued a statement which said, emergency medical services were called to the station and transported her to the local hospital where she was pronounced dead. Now, no details were released about the child's identity or cause of death or the welfare of her family. But per protocol, the United States Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility will be investigating. But this is unfortunately not the only tragedy. It comes just less than a week after a teenager died while detained at a facility. Per this headline from The Guardian, unaccompanied Honduran teen dies in US custody as Title 42 expires. Investigators trying to determine cause for teen's death which occurred in a Florida shelter on Wednesday. Now, Honduran officials identified the dead child as Angel Eduardo Mardiega Espinoza. From the Guardian, Angel Espinoza was admitted into the Gulf Coast Jewish Family and Community Services Shelter in Safe Harbor, Florida on the 5th of May without being accompanied by a parent or guardian. Five days later, he was taken to a nearby hospital after being found unconscious and was declared dead after an hour of CPR attempts. News of Espinoza's death arrived a day after the United States ended Title 42. And just as a reminder, the restrictions blocked the right of many migrants to claim asylum at the United States-Mexico border, citing health concerns related to COVID-19. Now, Joe Biden's administration has replaced Title 42 restrictions with new measures aimed at preventing and deterring people from entering the border illegally. The White House has sent 24,000 Border Patrol agents and officers to the border to enforce the new restrictions. A humanitarian crisis at the United States-Mexico border does exist and it continues, but it's not the one that conservatives are would have you believe it is. Um, but this is really because of the United States government's failure to reform the dysfunctional, outdated, and underfunded immigration and asylum system, particularly the changes that occurred during the Trump administration. That you know, I I can't find a better word to describe than inhumane. Um, Dan, what are your thoughts on this and and the you know, in my opinion, unwillingness of the Biden administration to you know approach this from a position of care and empathy. I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. There's an inability to think about this with empathy. There is a lack of care and a total showing of inhumanity when we're looking at these situations of immigration. Um, not to both sides it too much, but I think this is when it comes to issues of migration in this country, it's when you can see most when we have two conservative parties, an outright fascist one, and a ooh maybe not fascism or like fascism light one on the second hand with the border here. Because not only are we failing to think about, um, you know, how do we handle this humanitarian crisis at the border? That's happened through Democratic administrations and Republican administrations, but especially because. Especially on the right, you have an entire apparatus that's meant to take away the historical learnings we could know about. Hmm, why are all of these countries in the global south and Central America so destabilized that people are seeking asylum in America? What historical political decisions were made within the past 50 or 60 or 70 years that might have led us to where we are today? No, we're trying to take away that history. So not only are our politicians turning a blind eye to it, but we can't even teach the broader public public to you know, be a little bit more skeptical when Fox News shows these images of caravans coming on the border. So it's a systemic failure all around. I couldn't agree more. And I 
just quickly, I worked in immigration law a little bit um, during the end of the Trump administration and then the beginning of the Biden administration. And it really did a lot to change my perspective. I was always pro immigration, but getting to meet the people seeking asylum and to see the inner workings of the immigration process and specifically the asylum process. And you know, most of my clients are people who didn't even want to come to the United States. They would love to have stayed in their home country and stayed with their family there and been around the resources that they had, you know, connected with there, but were forced to come to the United States out of desperation. So the framing of, of immigration by the right wing, I think, is particularly despicable once you start to understand, like, from a human perspective, you know, the reasons that people are forced to come here. A lot of them created by the United States and the conditions that they've created in Latin America and South America. Um, any last thoughts before we move on to this next story? No, I mean, I just. I'm glad that on the left, we're trying to push a better perspective on this. We just definitely have to keep fighting because there's a lot of Democrats who are choosing to not see the situation for what it is. Absolutely, and speaking of keep fighting, (laughs) there's a fight going on in the Republican Party over who should be the next candidate for president from the Republican Party. And in April, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said this while he was on a trip in Japan. I'm not I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if if and when that changes. <laughs> I can't get over the face he makes there. It's so so disconcerting. Um, but it's been a month and now it's starting to look like we're going to see his announcement coming up. We've seen him ramp up his momentum towards an official announcement. And apparently it could be as soon as next week, according to reporting from CBS. From that reporting, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to make his entry into the 2024 presidential campaign official next week. Three people familiar with the planning tell CBS News. His plans to file papers with the FEC formalizing his presidential candidacy is timed to coincide with the Miami gathering of some of the governor's most generous longtime donors who are expected to receive briefings on campaign strategy and request to help raise significant sums of cash for his bid. Three people familiar with the plan said. However, the DeSantis fans who I'm sure are not watching this show unless they're hate watching it might have to wait a couple more days. Because according to CBS, a more formal kickoff event is expected to be held closer to June 1st. According to those familiar with his plans, it is likely to occur in DeSantis's hometown of Dunedin, Florida. Sources familiar with the plans said. Now, DeSantis has been on a wild run of passing repressive and oppressive legislation in the state of Florida. We've seen it ramp up, particularly in the past year. He's been targeting education in the state, particularly educating on black history and targeting the LGBTQIA community with a slate of bills such as the Don't Say Gay Bill. As he preps for that official announcement, let us remind you that DeSantis is utilizing his GOP support in Florida to make his 2024 run a lot easier. Let's pull up this headline from The Guardian. Quote, impossible to hold him accountable. DeSantis signs laws to ease 2024 run. Measures would let him campaign while serving as Florida governor and shield travel records from the public. Um, But as we've mentioned on Unboss before, DeSantis has to get through the orange and red wall that is Donald Trump. According to New York Magazine and the Real Clear Politics polling averages, Trump now leads DeSantis by 36.1%, 56% to 19.9%. His biggest margin over his rival since the 2022 midterms made RDS a Republican megastar. So there is a world between the amount of support that Trump has and DeSantis has. Of course, we have no idea what might happen as the you know primaries start to ramp up. Um, I have a strong feeling that Trump is, is not gonna get beat by DeSantis, which honestly gives me a little bit of relief. Of course, I hate both of them and wouldn't wanna see either of them anywhere near the Oval Office. Um, but I think in my opinion, DeSantis is, a more unhinged 
threat to you know the American people. Dan, I'd be interested in what you were thinking of as this Republican primary starts to heat up. I waffle back and forth on who's worse between Trump and Ron DeSantis. But really fast while we have the split screen up, Duke 6X on Twitch is saying Ron DeSantis is bobblehead ass. We're just knocking enough of the <laughs> It's just so unhinged. Like, and if there's that, there's putting fingers, definitely all of the like political heads who will be, you know, are the only people who are paying attention at this point in the game are getting a little bit of unhinged joy a little bit from Ron DeSantis here. But I've kind of said it, I'm not the only one. There's some other folks on Twitter, Emma Viglin's been saying this a lot. But yeah, Ron DeSantis just doesn't have the juice. You can't look at polling right now. I don't think it would be such a blowout of Donald Trump having a 20, 30 point advantage if you were to have a Republican primary. I mean, when you start having the Coxes and primaries this time next year. But I don't think Ron DeSantis, even though he's made a lot of spin in Florida, even though he's been able to bend previous rules that were made specifically for Florida governors trying to become president to prevent them from doing that and politicking while they should be governing their state. Ron DeSantis is a total hold over that. And so I think it's good in the media for people who are paying attention. But for people who are in Florida, who aren't like super into this political system, who aren't falling for this groomer panic, this anti-black, anti-POC, anti-trans panic, it's gonna be turning a lot of people off. And there's room within the Republican faction. There's definitely some splitting between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis on anyone but Trump candidate. But ultimately, this is gonna be an election about, okay, do we want Trump again? Or are we going to be okay with the Democratic Party as is? And it's shaping up to be that kind of election again. DeSantis doesn't fit anywhere in that picture. Although, yeah, I think. He is more dangerous and that he gets results, but he's less dangerous than Trump because Trump is just better at this politics thing, unfortunately, and better for better or worse. So we'll see. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think DeSantis has really shown that he he lacks political instincts. Um, I mean, just the ability he has to embarrass himself. Bobbleheadness aside, the fact that he was declaring Meatball Ron as a racist nickname instead of just taking it in stride. <laughs> you know, Trump was gonna come up with something. Ron de Sanctimonious didn't stick. You should have just been prepared. Those giant galoshes he wore. <laughs> I mean, this man is really just, he's good at embarrassing himself in public. But I mean, there's also the super, of course, the, the concerning fascistic laws coming out of the state. The reports about his torture of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, the way that he very brutally tried to end a hunger strike and the torture that he did against those prisoners and apparently the enjoyment that he got from doing it. So the more I learned about him, the more of a threat I think he is. Although I don't think he's much of a threat when it comes to facing Donald Trump, I just think that there's no way that you can effectively position yourself as a Republican candidate who has to criticize Donald Trump because then you're losing a massive base of support. If you were able to, you know, run alongside him as you know he did when he was running to be governor, that's different. You don't have to criticize that base. You want to play to that base. You want to call Trump on the phone sobbing about how much you want his endorsement, apparently. Um so I really do think that this is not gonna end the way that he wants it to. But I also think that he's still building up his profile within the Republican Party. And that that does scare me because this is someone who's proven that he can be effective. Yeah, I really fast want to, you tied in the serious points about Ron DeSantis, like the more, okay, here's what he is on policy, which are things people on the left won't like. But there are also things that, ugh, the whole, um, <laughs> that photo that he has where he's supposedly a teacher that Donald Trump keeps touting around, that looks kind of bad. The yeah. Guantanamo <laughs> thing, that looks kind of bad. But I was kind of talking a lot about aesthetics because you know, I already know I don't like Ron DeSantis on these issues or on the things in his past. But the aesthetics matter because it's about when you're in the public presence, it's how is he reacting to these things. Mm -hmm. And in this trial run, all he can do is like, oh, I'm just gonna laugh it off. Oh, no one cares about that. Oh, Donald Trump's making me mad, maybe I'll sue him, ha ha ha. But he doesn't really have a good response to criticism, which is like, Point number one, like it's what they teach you in like, oh, so you want to run for president. You might want to have to learn to get a thick skin and be able to deflect some of these things and go on offense. That's something that DeSantis can't do. And yeah, I think if he built his time a little bit more and bided his time, which is harder to do when there's no, um, 
no presumptive nominee other than Trump. It like it looks like it's his moment, right? But maybe he'd have more chance in 2028. But he's just such a half-baked candidate right now that I I really agree with you on that point. He's just not even if he's building kind of a campaign right now, I think having this L that he's about to earn <laughs> so voraciously in this um presumptive presidential race that he's gonna try to put up. This L is not gonna look good on his record in 2028 when he does try to do his real effort again. Mm-hmm. And he could just go without all the effort. But what what am I doing giving Ron DeSantis free political advice? Because <laughs> we all know he watches Unbossed. He's a, he's a subscribed member, yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll keep all of you updated on Ron Guantanamo Bay versus Trump and the developments in this Republican primary, but right now we have to go to a break, but stick around because we'll be back with a lot more news. Welcome back to Unbossed. I'm Ravana filling in for Senator Dina Turner, joined with Dan Evans, who cracked me up during the break. I wish you were all privy to the conversation we just had. Um, But I want to I want to remind everybody to become a member. Every member is instrumental in helping us make this show happen. Your support is a huge part of the reason we're able to deliver a bold, progressive message. So don't forget to become a member at tyt.com/join. And I know all of you are watching live right now, but you know there might be a day where something comes up that you can't catch the show live, but that's okay because whenever you miss the show, you can always watch the videos on demand on our YouTube channel. You can check that out, youtube.com slash unbossed TYT. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the bell button so you can get alerts whenever the show goes live, whenever a new video drops. And lastly, don't forget to check the show out as a podcast. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I listen to the shows that I missed when I'm going for my runs in the morning. Particularly unbossed because Senator Nina Turner has a way of firing me up that is helpful when I'm feeling really lethargic at the gym. So don't forget to check the show out as a podcast. It's a great way to listen. Now, let's take a look at what some of you are saying. Over on Twitch, Dissident PM says, Ray, exclamation point. Thank you. Uh, Owen the Schmoopy Dragon says, "Oh, Ray, oh, there's a lot of ones that just say my name, so thank you, everybody. I appreciate that very much." Re918 says, "Wanted a longer nap, but it's okay to be awake for Ray." Oh, well, thank you. I hope you can go get a a, a nice nap afterwards. Um, Hunger Games says, "This is disgusting, and America has blood on its hands." I mean, America has a lot of blood on its hands. I could not agree more. Let's move over to the TYT members section. Vicky says, love me some Dan. Ray, congratulations on finishing school, XOXO. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And Cheesecake Brownie says, the death is on the Biden admin and all the buffoons doing nothing for these people. They are treating them as non-human about the story about the migrants. Couldn't agree more. And then quickly, let's go over to YouTube. Miss Anonymous says, what are they doing to these kids in relation to the story about immigration? Nothing good. Winter Dragon says they never let the kids out of the cage. We just quit talking about it. Exactly. We need to maintain focus on these issues because, you know, just because people stop talking about it doesn't mean that they're not still going on. That's an issue that has not been resolved. And we need to, you know, there's so many things going on. So it's easy to lose focus. But, you know, that's a humanitarian crisis. It's a very real reality for people every single day who are living it. So important to keep attention on it. Um, Bud Roland says, no positive for me, Paul. I can only assume that's about Ron DeSantis. And then lastly, uh, GMAC says, the bobblehead comment just took me out. So accurate. <laughs> took me out too. <laughs> okay. <sighs> this next story also is taking me out. So, <laughs> a little over a week ago on May 10th, California Senator Dianne Feinstein returned to the Senate after a long absence recovering from shingles. So they say, a couple days ago on Tuesday, a reporter asked her about her return. And the response has me asking WTF neoliberal. We will now kneel. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema, no. You have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. What have you heard? What have I heard about what? About your return. How have they felt about your no, return? No, I haven't been gone. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, you should follow me. I haven't been gone. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Please, either know or don't know. That was Senator Feinstein in an exchange with LA Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes. If you're just as confused as we are, and also apparently Diane Feinstein is, we really can't blame you. But this comes as Feinstein's ability to serve has been questioned by the press as well as some of her colleagues. From Oreskes' reporting, Feinstein's inability to maintain the taxing schedule required of a US Senator and her nearly three month absence led to some congressional Democrats calling for her to resign. Now Feinstein's absence was particularly taxing on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which she is a member of, considering the Democrats wanted to quickly confirm President Biden's nominees to the federal courts. During her absence, she requested Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer find a temporary replacement for her on the committee, but Republicans very quickly struck down that idea. Now, earlier this month on an Ask Me Anything thread with users on Blue Sky, which is a new social media app, Republican or excuse me, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called on Feinstein to resign in no uncertain terms. So let's take a look at that. Someone asked her, Diane Feinstein, and she replied, should retire. I think criticisms of that stance as quote anti-feminist are a farce. Her refusal to either retire or show up is causing great harm to the judiciary, precisely where reproductive rights are getting stripped. That failure means now in the precious window Dems can only pass GOP approved nominees. And she's spot on. And this new audio makes it quite clear that she's not able to serve. She wasn't even aware that she had been missing a substantial amount of time and a substantial amount of important votes. Whoever is advising her that she should continue on like this needs to get their head out of the sand. Because at this point, it seems like straight up elder abuse. Though if Feinstein's able to prove everyone wrong, maybe that's because of her pursuit of money. Let's look at this tweet from Unusual Wales. Diane Feinstein returns to Senate. Feinstein, who's 89 years old, has some of the most unusual trades in Congress over her 30 year career. And that time her net worth skyrocketed to over $200 million. Although in my opinion, I don't think that she necessarily even has the wherewithal to be in pursuit of money. Maybe people who would stand to benefit from that after she passes are pushing this on her. But I can't think of a good political reason or just a humane reason to for the Democrats to be pushing back against calls for her to retire. I mean, she is sick and elderly and confused and should be allowed to spend this time with some dignity and not being paraded around while she's in such a state. I really think that she needs to retire and that the Democratic Party, I mean, I can't even imagine what their reasoning behind not allowing this to happen is. Dan, do you have any insight on that? Oh yeah, tons. Um, I I'm still choosing to view this Diane Feinstein story, especially the clip you showed in the beginning, through the lens that like this is a rapper coming out of retirement after previously <laughs> saying that they had retired. They're like, what do you mean I've retired? I've been here the whole time. Why, why are you putting disrespect on my name? Like, come on, like. I, this is the reason why we're doing this on WTF neoliberals because this is. You know, back to what Bernie Sanders was saying in 2016. There's a rot within the Democratic Party, especially within the state Democratic parties. I have some light experience within the California's Democratic Party as well. There's some fine people who work there, and they're also sickos in the sense that you have people who are just looking for power and they see power as a ladder that you have to climb up. They are worried about, you know, doing the right thing in politics because they've been so consumed with, well, if I do the right thing, I'm shaking the ladder and I might fall off and then I'll have to you know, get a normal job as a lobbyist fixing bread prices like Pete Buttigieg or something like that. <laughs> and so you have people who are surrounding Dianne Feinstein who are you know, like unusual whales and like a lot of other people are insinuating, seem to benefit from that apparatus and those connections being made there that a Barbara Lee or um, Katie Porter or another you know newer person on the Democratic bench, which in California, I as always wish would be more progressive. But unlike a lot of parts of the country and the national 
circuit with large. California has a deep bench of progressives who would be awesome in the Senate, not just on the Judiciary Committee, but just in general. Katie Porter, the Democrat out of Orange County, the reddest part of the state. That's amazing. Barbara Lee has done phenomenal things as well. Adam Schiff, yeah, sure, whatever. But like, <laughs> you can tell my opinions here. I think that this refusal for the gerontocracy within the Democratic Party, especially, of course, the Republicans, but specifically here, is detrimental to the party getting new blood, getting new ideas. Most importantly, giving people a reason to vote for it and not just unplug from the system overall. So Feinstein still being up there is just representative of the um, literal brain rot that's unfortunately going on with her, but the actual brain rot within the Democratic Party institution. So again, join me in pretending that this is just um, the fun moment of when our grandparents get old and they're just like shooting off the cuff and off the hip and you're asking them crazy opinions and they have no filter. That That is the way I wish Diane Feinstein could spend her final days in dignity and perhaps with some humor on our end instead of us worried about reproductive rights. Exactly, and I just wanna, before we move on from the story, say, um, speaking of brain rot within the Democratic Party, uh, as a woman, it's not sexist to call for Dianne Feinstein to uh, step down, okay? The only way it could be sexist is, is if you're saying, I want her to step down because she's a woman. <laughs> That's the only way it would be sexist. And I think that so much of this criticism is just total BS, considering Dianne Feinstein was prosecuting women for getting abortions <laughs> at one point in her career. As she moved away from that significantly in her politics, sure. But like, let's let's get down to the brass tacks. It's complete and utter BS that they are even arguing that that's, that's the reason people want her to step down. I mean, we've seen the decline of her mental state. And there's serious things that, like you mentioned, reproductive rights that are on the table that need to be protected. And she does pose an issue there. but. Speaking of issues and the taking away of rights, let's move our attention over to what's happening in Texas. Um, Texas is just continuing to be a nightmare for LGBTQ folks, as well as particularly trans children. Now, the Republican-led legislator passed a bill to ban healthcare professionals from providing gender transitioning treatment. The bill now heads to Governor Greg Abbott, where he vows to sign it, unfortunately. Let's listen to what he had to say on Fox News. I'm not gonna make any secret about it, I'll be signing it. And Harris, this is about protecting children. Now remember this, and that is a person under the age of 18, they don't have the mental capacity to make a life-changing decision to lose their sex organs. In the state of Texas, if you're under the age of 18, you can't get a tattoo, you can't buy cigarettes and so many other things, but people think that they should be able to make a decision to permanently alter their sex organs. That's just outrageous. In Texas, we believe that cutting off a child's sex organs is child abuse, and it's gonna be treated that way by law. <sighs> the bill is Texas Senate Bill 14, and it bans healthcare professionals from doing the following. It bans them from providing gender transitioning treatment, which they state is sterilization or puberty suppressing drugs to children. Although who would you give puberty suppressing drugs to other than children? I can't even begin to fathom <laughs> what the answer to that question could possibly be. Um, but let's get into some more details about this heinous bill. Um, from the Washington Post, Texas's Senate Bill 14 threatens to take away the licenses of violating healthcare providers, but has some exceptions. Children who are already receiving treatment for gender transition or dysphoria may continue to receive care, but those children must, quote, wean off any drugs they are taking, and they will not be legally able to begin a new course of treatment. So continuing to receive care for those children is only temporary. But under the bill, the banned procedures for the purposes of gender reassignment are mastectomies, which is the removal of breast tissue, surgeries that would sterilize the child, and drugs that, quote, induce transient or permanent infertility. Now, physicians who actually know what the hell they're talking about have repeatedly objected to legislation impeding access to gender affirming care. But of course, Governor Greg Abbott does not care about that. He doesn't care about the facts and he sure as hell doesn't care about protecting the children. And when he signs this bill, he will make Texas the most populous state to ban gender affirming care for minors. 
At least 18 states have banned gender affirming medication or surgical care. And here is a map from April that shows the states and states with potential bans. So you can see Texas would now be gray, but the states in gray have totally or partially blocked or in the states in purple have possible bans. Um, this is a civil rights issue. That's what's happening here. These states are not, they don't care about protecting kids. And after, you know, I'll bring you in here first, Dan, but I'll, I'll go into more detail about how ex explicitly they don't care about protecting children. Um, but they're going against medical best practices in their pursuit to supposedly protect the children, while doctors, healthcare providers are screaming at the top of their lungs that this will only do the opposite. This will protect kids, it will kill kids, and they don't care. Dan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what you're gonna say to like break down exactly how they don't care about kids. And I often kind of worry about how point, what point there is to pointing out Republican hypocrisy at any point, but here it goes anyways. I remember 10 years ago when the message for America not having a public option to a, or a single payer healthcare system at all was the idea is I don't want politicians and bureaucrats getting in the way of decisions I'm making with my doctor. 10 years later, these politicians and bureaucrats are getting in the way of decisions that are, it's not in a 17 year old going, hey, I want a tattoo that my parents will let me get. It's not a 16 year old going, hey, I want this type of surgery, whatever. No, it's a regimen that doctors and parents and the um, people involved are doing together over multiple years. And like we're saying, if you really cared about kids, then you wouldn't be getting in the way of their doctors and the care they're being prescribed to or trying to say, hey, you know those drugs that have like actually given you the ability to align with your gender and how you feel. Yeah, get off of those if you want to live in the state of Texas and not uproot your life. And you know, make your life worse so that when you are of age to maybe become a parent in the state of Texas that apparently cares about kids, um, you have a harder time doing that because you're having a hard time even taking care of yourself. It's ridiculous this idea of bodily autonomy or uh, keep the government out of healthcare because they want to dictate people's lives all the time. Exactly. I'm glad to see some states standing up for trans rights and becoming, you know, safe states, like refuge states for trans rights that will protect, you know, trans children and have, you know, committed to not extraditing families to be investigated in states, you know, banning gender affirming surgery. Of course, alongside that, we're going to need robust, you know, nonprofit work or through the states funds to move these people because moving is an arduous process financially. It's very taxing emotionally. If you know you don't have a job ready in that new state, it could be you know an impossibility. So you know as as long as these states are continuing to ban gender affirming care, we really need to come together you know to provide an exit route for the families to be safe in in other states while we're fighting those through the courts and you know through activist moves. But to that point, to prove that the that Greg Abbott and the state of Texas, the Republicans in Texas do not care about protecting kids. I mean, I think the best example is the fact that they refuse to do anything to address and in fact have done a lot to facilitate the number one cause of death in children in the United States, which is gun violence. And let's just listen to what he had to say on gun violence in Texas. Uh, and uh, people want a quick solution. The long-term solution here uh, is to address the mental health issue. And one, one last thing about this, Shannon, and that is it truly seems today that America is more divided than we've been in decades. And we've got to find a way in this country where we can once again reunite Americans as Americans and come together as one big family. Uh, and in that regard, find ways to reduce violence in our country. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly divisions over any number of heated topics, including this one. We're gonna end gun violence by all coming together and holding hands and singing Kumbaya, apparently, according to Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And the state of Texas that he is the governor of has a sick addiction to guns and it shows. Let's pull up this headline from CNN. Gun-loving Texas, where most households own a firearm, has become an epicenter of mass shootings. Now, let's just remind you that five of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in America over the past eight years all took place in Texas. 
But in Texas, roughly 60% of households own at least one gun. And the data doesn't lie when it comes to the state. From that CNN report, there is a direct correlation between states with weaker gun laws and higher rates of gun deaths. That relation is evident in Texas, where the number of mass shootings has tripled in the past five years. While mass shootings nationwide have nearly doubled from 2018 through the end of last year, according to data compiled by the Gun Violence Archive. Now, Shannon Watts, who is the founder of Moms Demand Action, stated, over and over again, Governor Abbott has put gun maker profits above public safety, statistics and data be damned. Every time there's a shooting tragedy in Texas, the governor and his Republican allies, whether they are in state or federal government, point the finger at something that has no data to prove it's actually the cause. Whether it's mental illness, single parent homes, violent video games, too many exit doors, not enough exit doors, the list goes on. And after the mass shooting in Uvalde, <laughs> Ted Cruz's solution was to put mousetrap style traps around your kids schools. These Republicans from Texas aren't serious about protecting kids whatsoever. They, they weren't serious when they were using it as an excuse to uh, you know, pass laws to discriminate against trans children. And they're not serious when it comes to actually addressing the number one cause of death for children in this country, gun violence. They don't care about protecting the kids, Dan. Absolutely right. And when Greg Abbott goes, oh, what would help in this country is if we all united and came as one. Actually, what would help in this country is if we, when we try to teach about people coming from different cultures and trying to unite in America and exist and assimilate, you didn't call that wokeism or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you didn't work in your state of Texas and try to destroy those kinds of things that would allow people to understand each other. You would almost believe these pro life, oh, we care about the life of the baby kind of arguments is, if when that baby was born, if their mother or birth giver was undocumented, then that baby becomes an anchor baby and they're thrown to the system. These systems that Texas and other Republican states don't actually serve because if you know anyone who's in the foster system, those people are horribly underserved. You go to a school, like you mentioned, Ted Cruz says, there's gonna be shootings everywhere. And Ted Cruz and Republicans only response is, oh, well, your kids are in there. Damn, that sucks. I guess we should just lock the doors or like get heavier doors or barricades. Like when once the kid is born, if they are anything but white and male and extremely rich and their parents are Republicans, F them kids. <laughs> That's right. the Republican Party like philosophy there. And the last point on that is that I've kind of, it's not been a realization, but it's just been a framework is that for the past, However long I've been paying attention to politics, not to date myself too badly. The Republicans have been saying that more is better. More cops means less crime. More cops means fewer shootings. More guns means fewer shootings. And those numbers have skyrocketed in the 15 years. And by those numbers, I mean all of them. All of the cop numbers have gone up. All the gun numbers have gone up. And the crime numbers are also going up, at least the crimes that are caused by these guns. And so there's clearly a correlation here, but it directly disproves, like um, Shannon Watts from Moms Demands Action says, statistics be damned, it disproves what Republicans are saying. It's just a shame that you know people are dying as a result of this you know blatant politicking that Republicans are doing on behalf of gun manufacturers and the cops. Exactly, but I think that they make one good point and that the true cause of crime and gun violence in this country is actually the woke mind virus. And that's what we need to be combating through legislation, using your taxpayer dollars to make it illegal to have to be woke. I wish Greg Abbott would make like most white people in the South and just steal from Mexico because AMLO was saying that, you know what Americans need? Hugs, that would solve <laughs> their gun crime, that would be better. That would almost make me happier as a response than what Greg Abbott's actually doing here. It's kind of disgusting. Speaking of disgusting stuff, Republicans, whether they're in Texas or at the Capitol building, can't stop doing insane circus activities. Now, the Republican specifically I'm talking about is Jim Jordan, who's pulling together some of the strongest minds he knows, which doesn't say very much about them, which is a wild group of COVID truthers and January 6th deniers. And he's referring to them for no reason at all as whistleblowers. Now, what exactly will these kooks be weighing in on? Well, apparently they're experts being called to testify on the politicization 
of federal law enforcement, because of course they are. And the hearing went just as you may imagine, Jim Jordan not knowing how committees work and plowing through legitimate questioning. Let's watch. Point of order is why does no, rule 11 yeah. clause two subsection E1A not apply to this subcommittee? I can read for you. Each committee shall keep a complete record of all committee action, which shall include in the case of a meeting or hearing transcript, a substantially verbatim account of remarks we actually it. made during the proceedings, subject only to some technical things. Such records shall be the property of the house and each member, delegate, and the resident commissioner shall have access there too. Why does that not apply? Where is the whistleblower exception in the rules of Congress that says that does not apply? It's the prerogative of the committee to decide. No, we it's have not. The, we have, it's the rules of the have, House. We have the whistleblower testimony. The whistleblower does not wish that to be made available to the Democrats at this time. The whistleblower time. doesn't make committee Mr. Lynch, rules, sir. Mr. Lynch, Mr. Lynch is recognized for five minutes of questioning. Now I can't emphasize enough that these whistleblowers are just a, a bunch of losers that Jim Jordan gathered together and, and made a team out of. But the, the hearing continued, so let's watch some more of this. Chairman, it's my understanding what's, that- what's, what's, your, what's, your, what's your, what are you, is your, are you making a point of order? No, I'm asking you a question, or, Okay. a point of inquiry. Okay. It's my understanding that the minority in this committee under the rules is entitled to the same testimony, information, documents that the majority uh, is entitled to. So, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware that you're able to withhold information from the minority that we would need to use to no. prepare for a- When it comes to whistleblowers, you're not. And I would just, I would just remind the committee, remind everyone, look- Alan, Mr. Chairman, these individuals said, have been determined not, not to be whistleblowers. To these are not whistleblowers. They've been determined by the agency not to be whistleblowers. Are you deciding that they're whistleblowers? Yes, the law decides. Did you not listen to Mr. Levitt's testimony? Did you not read the law? The his law decides that they are whistleblowers. His attorney the is chair recognizes the general lady from the New York. Not the general lady from New York has been recognized. The law has not determined they are whistleblowers. His attorney is just asserting that. Now, Jim Jordan was questioned about these witnesses and payments from Trump advisors, and he responded again, just as you might imagine he did. Talking a lot about the point of this press conference, the point of the hearing is to talk about how the FBI is politicized. But do you think it's appropriate for some of these whistleblowers, including two who will be at your hearing today, to be paid by one of the former president's closest advisors, Cash Patel, who's active? They got a family. How are they supposed to feed their family? 450 days. The FBI has kept these, uh, has kept Mr. O'Boyle in, in limbo where he can't work without pay. He's got four kids. He's got four kids, they had to send those payments to him. Ethics be damned, I don't care how bad it looks. He's, oh boy, he has to feed his four children. I've been calling this group of people losers this entire segment and I'll stand by that, they are losers. But I have to laugh at myself a little bit because here I am cracking up at um, the upending of congressional procedure. <laughs> Which is something that only someone severely politically brained <laughs> might find funny, but I digress. Um, let's get into a little bit of background on how this panel came to be. From The Guardian, in February, Republicans in the House of Representatives created a panel on what they say is the politicization of the FBI and Justice Department against conservatives. Critics saw it as an attempt to entangle Joe Biden in spurious investigations ahead of next year's election. Because if there's a group of people that has been discriminated against by law enforcement in this country systemically for decades, for centuries, it's conservatives. <laughs> but you know, basically what they're saying is they're complaining that they're being bullied by the FBI. You know, whether or not they did crimes that would warrant an FBI investigation is irrelevant. <laughs> they're being bullied by the FBI. But let's talk about what happened today. <laughs> From The Guardian, witnesses set to testify to Congress about the quote weaponization of the United States government on Thursday have links to far right groups and a history of supporting conspiracy theories about coronavirus vaccines. And of course, also the January 6th insurrection, a congressional watchdog has warned. Now, here are some of the goons on the loser team that Representative Jordan brought together. 
First is Stephen Friend, who's a former FBI special agent and a QAnon believer. Then there's Garrett O'Boyle, who's got those four kids he desperately needs to feed, who's also a former FBI special agent who doesn't believe in the vaccine. Marcus Allen is a staff or was a staff operations specialist for the FBI, also a January 6th supporter. And then last, but certainly maybe least, is Tristan Leavitt, who was the president of Empower Oversight and also a January 6th supporter. Um, Kyle Heurig, who is the executive director of the Congressional Integrity Project, had this to say to The Guardian. Those witnesses are extreme, even by Jim Jordan's standards, but we shouldn't be surprised that he's continuing to handpick conspiracy theorists and insurrection supporters to appear before the so-called weaponization subcommittee. The witnesses are Trump loyalists who will go to any lengths to defend the former president's lies, just like Jordan himself. Weaponization subcommittee is the funniest name <laughs> they could have come to. I mean, you might as well just call it self-victimization subcommittee. Um, Dan, you think this is a good use of political resources? <laughs> yeah, other than making nerds like us laugh at C-SPAN, one of the rare <laughs> times you can possibly make one do a thing, yes. Um, I, I'll keep my opinions brief because every time I see Gymnasium Jordan, yes, that's Gymnasium Jordan, a representative from Ohio, a former faculty at Ohio State. Why am I saying Gymnasium Jordan? Maybe you should Google all the things I'm saying and maybe you'll be as confused as I am when you see that Gymnasium Jordan of a former Ohio State fame is all of a sudden caring about oversight and all of a sudden caring about <laughs> procedure and all of a sudden caring about um, holding people accountable and the weaponization of being in power and having control of things when um, other people don't. It's really interesting that all of a sudden Gymnasium Jordan, uh, formerly of Ohio State, now just a representative of Ohio, currently cares about accountability. Because again, certain times in his Gymnasium Jordan related past, he has not. So yeah, yeah Google that. <laughs> Definitely oh, Google that. <laughs> and speaking of accountability, some people over at MSNBC don't want to have any when it comes to President Joe Biden. Now, Mika Brzezinski of MSNBC's Morning Joe wants you to know that according to her, President Biden is working so hard. So watch this. President Biden keeps up a brutal schedule. There is no question that there is a tremendous difference, and this is understating it incredibly, between the amount of work that he puts in in a day compared to former President Trump and his executive time. Right. Biden and Dr. Jill Biden, they are very giving of themselves. They show up at everything. They give their time. And I mean, it's part of his kindness. It's part of his political instincts. I know you would be exhausted if you had his schedule and probably would take some days off. Or I would, you know. Wow. First and foremost, the the bar is exceptionally low when you're comparing how much work President Biden is doing to Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, come on, come on now. The bar is in hell. Um, but what really stood out to me is her saying that Biden goes everywhere and talks to people. Um, but let's pull up this headline from the Hill because I think there's a group of people who would like to have a word with him, and that is the the people of East Palestine, um, because he still hasn't visited these people. By now it's May, and the toxic train derailment happened in February. He still hasn't visited these people, so I guess he's not going everywhere and talking to everybody. Um, but if you're having to hype up Biden again by saying that he works so hard, and on top of that, you're comparing him to possibly the laziest president in modern history, <laughs> Donald Trump. And in modern history, we also had George W. Bush. So that's <laughs> a high threshold <laughs> for laziness. But you're really not helping Biden's cause. Um, and it's similar to what Fox News and Newsmax do when it comes to Trump. It's just, it feels like hyped up propaganda. It doesn't feel genuine. And it's really not something that people who actually do work really hard are gonna be able to connect to. I'm sure that someone who has to work 12 hour shifts as a nurse in a hospital isn't gonna be like, yeah, I'm sure that Biden's working much harder than I am. I mean, come on now. I mean, it feels very removed from the lived experience of working class people in this country. but. What else would I expect from the co-host of Morning Joe? <laughs> um, but if Biden were more giving of his time, he would listen to what the American people are saying. And one thing they're saying 
is that he should not run again for president. Something I've been saying pretty loudly for a long time. Um, but let's look at this reporting from The Hill. It says 70% of Americans think Biden shouldn't seek a second term, including 51% of Democrats. 48% of those who said he shouldn't run again cited his age as a major reason. Presidents shouldn't get brownie points and they shouldn't get gold stars for going to events, you know, or doing little speaking engagements or traveling the country because that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You know, but you know who does actually deserve that praise? The American people, the hardworking American people. Let's pull up this headline. It says the United States is the most overworked developed nation in the world. And it is frustrating to see, you know, MSNBC do some, you know, and I, I wouldn't compare them exactly to Fox News. I wouldn't say they are the, you know, Democratic Party's version of Fox News. I think that they do present things typically a lot more factually than Fox News does to their credit. But when it comes to these types of, you know, shows where they're just sort of giving their opinion in long form and Essentially, you know, just stroking Biden off <laughs> the idea that his schedule is jam packed. It's grotesque and it's really divorced from what the, you know, American people and the average, you know, Democrat supporter wants to see in a presidential candidate or the president himself. Dan, <laughs> what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't usually go this low, but yeah, Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough are technically married. And I think Mika was giving Joe Biden more action than <laughs> Joe Scarborough has been getting in a while, just based on his face during that entire segment. I'm like, <laughs> are we good there? <laughs> Joe's like, hey, Scarborough's like, hey man, let, let me get on this. Come on, what's what's all this? Even that little dig at the end that's like, I know you could, you would be exhausted, which is like, <laughs> a, hey man, I'm just gonna, but no, like, when you were saying, why are we giving presidents all this credit for talking and going to meetings when, by the way, they're already not doing it? Reminded me, and you were mentioning, you know, Bush was like this, Trump was like this. Remind me of the Bush phrase, soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> because, yeah, we should have um, presidents working harder because our people um, are working even harder than that. Exactly. Yeah. And it does, it does feel really annoying to see these presidents getting brownie points for just. Uh, you know, being mildly competent <laughs> and being, oh, look, President Biden drove himself somewhere today. He rode his bike and he didn't fall over. Gold star for him. Um, We're that, that's all the time we have today. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Tell the people where they can follow you, where they can see what you're working on, what you got coming up. Uh, DanFromTheEnter.net is a new website that has existed all the time, but it's way easier to just say that than to just say all the links I'm working on: Power Report, Audio Face, Good Morning, Bad News, etc. Um, great to be on with you, Ravana, and shout out to everyone at TYT. Good to be on with you. Yeah, thank you, thank you everybody for watching. Um, that's all for us today. There'll be more Unbossed tomorrow, so until then, have a good night. Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Iderola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and The Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.